All right. If you have your Bibles with you, would you please turn to Genesis chapter 39 and Romans chapter 5. Again, that's Genesis chapter 39 and Romans chapter 5. We're continuing in our series, Dreamer, and the entire idea behind this is that for every single person, there is a dream and a destiny that God has given you and that God has called you to. But before you can walk into the fullness of that destiny, there are a series of tests of your character that you have to pass. And this week, we're looking at the prison test. And the prison test is how you respond when you do the right thing and yet suffer the wrong result. This is something that we all have had happen to us in our life at some point, and usually it's a continuing process. It continues to happen. I remember the very first time I came to the realization that you can do the right thing and have the wrong result from it. I was in second grade in Mrs. Butterfield's classroom. This is the only thing I remember about second grade. But I was an animal lover at the time. I was an animal lover. Uh, I don't as much anymore. People say, well, why don't you love animals? I'm like, well, I still like them, but when I grew up and I found out that I had to pick up after them and I had to pay for them, my love for them began to wane drastically. I liked it better when someone else cared for them and paid for them. But there was a spider that was crawling across the floor of my second grade class. And second graders, you know, we're real mature about distractions, so they see it and all of a sudden people are screaming and they're forming a circle around it. The teacher's completely lost control of the classroom instantly. Some people are saying, run away. Some people are saying, kill it. You need to get rid of that thing. And, and something stirred up inside of my, my little heart. And I said, I'm going to save that spider. All life has value. And it's not right that we kill it. So in my mind, I'm imagining that I'm going to get up there. I go into superhero mode, and I think I'm going to confidently stride up to that spider in slow-mo camera, and I'm going to reach down there, and I'm going to scoop it up into my hands, and I'm going to lift it up and run to the window and release it back into its natural environment. It will go on to live a fulfilling life, have lots of children, which now would be a bad thing in retrospect. But I imagine then people are going to look at me, and you know, women are going to swoon, Men are going to name their sons after me. Spiders across the world are going to weave my name into their webs. I just watched Charlotte's Web, so I was very influenced by that. And as I go over there and I reach down to grab this spider, I put my hand over the top of it, and some kid steps on my hand. And I hear like a crunch with a And I'm like, oh no. And I turn my hand over. And this precious little spider life that I've been working so hard to save is just all over. And I look at it, and I'm in shock and disbelief, and I start crying. And I'm just in tears, and once again, I have an active imagination, and I imagine that my tears are bringing shame upon everyone else. <laughs> that they're realizing the error of their ways. That their hearts are going to be turned in this moment and I will still be a hero. But instead, the kids start laughing at me. Like, look at the crybaby, he's crying over a spider. And I was just, that made me cry even more. And I'm just distraught and I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, I remember going home that day and still thinking about how did this happen? I did the right thing. I put myself out there for that spider. And I, and I feel shame now because I failed in what it was that I was trying to accomplish. And I feel shame because everybody else is laughing at me and mocking me because of this. So that was the first realization of that you can do the right thing 
And you can suffer the wrong result. And as you get older and you move on in life, it gets bigger. The things that you're trying to do are more important than saving spiders. You become more heavily invested in what it is you're trying to do. You have a dream and a vision that God has given you, and you put yourself on the line for it. You make sacrifices of your time, your energy. I mean, emotionally, you're vested in this thing. Financially, you're vested in it. You're doing everything that you can think of to do right, and yet you are suffering the wrong results. And when you get older... It's not just crying about a spider anymore, but you begin to doubt yourself and you think, well, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I messed up somehow. Maybe I didn't hear from God. Maybe I've done something wrong that's made it so that now I've disqualified myself from the dream that God has for me. Or maybe you even start to question other people and humanity, or maybe you even begin to question God and you say, God, where were you in all of this? If this is what you call me to, then why are you allowing me to fail? Why is it that the harder I try, it seems like the farther I am from the destiny that you've called me to? And we begin to feel shame because of our failures, and we begin to feel like maybe God has abandoned us, or maybe we misheard him. But shame begins to be something that covers us as we see ourselves living far from the destiny that God has called us to. And Joseph knew what it was like to do the right thing and suffer the wrong results. And that's why as we look at him, there's so many incredible things that we can learn from his life and how it translates into the way that we're to pursue God in our dream. Uh, Joseph, remember, he's a 17-year-old punk kid when God gives him his dream. He has this calling that God gives to him. He's not mature enough. He's not ready. But at the age of 17, he's given this incredible calling on his life when he's not prepared for it. You see, you're not ready for God's calling when you receive it. God gives you the dream and the vision, and then he gets you ready to walk into it. And that's what this whole series is about. But for the next 13 years of Joseph's life, his life goes from really good, he's the favored son, he's got blessings all over him, to being in the worst of situations, to being a slave, to being a prisoner in Egypt. And you think that when God gives you the dream, it's just going to happen. But there's a process that you have to go through. God gives you a promise, but then there's a process that leads you to the fulfillment of it. And this is what happens to Joseph. He has this incredible dream. He goes, and the next thing we read about him is his dad says, hey, I want you to go out and find your brothers. I want you to check on them and just give me a report on how they're doing. So he's an obedient son. He does what his dad asks him to. He goes out there. He tracks down his brother who are a couple days' journey away. So he's walking for days by himself, going to find his brothers. His brothers see him coming because he's wearing that stupid coat. And as he's just being an obedient son, the doing the right thing, the result of it is that he gets thrown into a pit and he gets sold into slavery. That's the wrong result for what he did. And then the next thing we see is that he's living as a slave. He's living in Potiphar's house, unjustly imprisoned and enslaved. He's serving Potiphar the very best that he can. It says that God's hand is on him and it's causing Potiphar's whole household to prosper. Potiphar even recognizes that I am prospering because of Joseph. And then Potiphar's wife starts making some advances. And Joseph does the right thing. And he says, no, we cannot do this. I cannot do this to my master and I cannot sin against God like this. He does the right thing. He remains pure and refuses her advances. But then this is what happens. In Genesis 39, verses 13 through 20, it says, And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand, remember he ran away, leaving his garment on her hand when she made an advance on him. It says, She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. 
He came to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. And then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. He did the right thing, and he got the wrong result again. Now, what's the common thread that you see going on in Joseph's life? You wear a coat, and you get yourself in trouble. I would never wear a coat if I was him again. If it was today and it's cold out there and someone offered him a coat, I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm never wearing a coat again. It got me thrown in a pit and then it got me thrown in a prison. But the thing that we see is he constantly does the right thing and he constantly suffers the wrong result. Have you ever found yourself like that? Or maybe even today you find yourself in that situation where God's given you a dream. You know the destiny that he's called you to. But it seems like no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you put yourself into doing the right thing, you keep getting the wrong result. And you feel like you're farther and farther away from what it is that God's called you to. Remember what this series is about? It's about character. That God's desire for you before he can lead you into the fullness of his plan for you is that you have to have a strong character that will support the blessing that God's going to pour out on you. God is a God who wants to bring you into the dream he's given you. He's the one that gave it to you. This is what he wants for your life. But he can't give it to you until you're able to steward that, which requires a strong character. The prison test shows you how it is that you respond when things don't go the way that you thought, when things don't go the right way, when unjust things happen to you. And that's really a big revelation of your character. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul gives us some really good insight on what's going on during our times of suffering and how we respond to that. In Romans chapter 5, it says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I love how he starts that out. He says, rejoice in your suffering. And that word rejoice literally means boast about it. It means to glory in your suffering. And when I read that, my natural reaction to it is rejoice in suffering. Are you insane? Why on earth would you rejoice because you're going through suffering? Why would you rejoice that you did the right thing and you got the wrong result? You know what I want to do when I suffer? I want to eat ice cream. I want to sit on my couch and I want to mope around. I want my wife to come up and be like, oh, you're the victim. Everybody else is just so mean. They just don't understand. That's what I want people to do. That makes me feel better. Rejoicing in my suffering does not make me feel better. It seems stupid. But this is what Paul says. He says, you can actually rejoice in the suffering that you're going through. And he knows this because as a Christian, as an apostle in the earliest days, he is going through incredible persecution. He is going through incredible suffering and in following out the ministry that God's called him to. God says, I want you to go and tell people about my love for them so they can receive a redemption inside of their bodies. I want you to build up and support the local churches. So what's the result? He gets stoned and left for dead. He gets shipwrecked. He gets bitten by snakes. He gets flogged. Uh, his people that are following him turn against him. Uh, he suffers a lot of really wrong thing in following that out. 
And people are saying to him, if you're following God's will for your life, then why are you suffering so much? Clearly, God's blessing isn't upon you. If you were following God's will, if God's favor was on you, then you wouldn't be going through the suffering. But Paul's responding by that and saying, you know what? The fact that I am suffering for what God has called me to do is a proof that I am on the right track. Not only that, but I know what the suffering I'm going through produces. And because I know what the suffering produces in my life, I can rejoice in it. It's a lot like watching someone go through pregnancy. My wife, I remember with our, our first child, there were the three stages of pregnancy that I began to identify in scientific terms. The first stage was the everything is gross stage. Where she would, I remember, it was the funniest thing. We'd be watching TV and there'd be an Arby's commercial come on. And she would see an advertisement for like a roast beef junior bacon melt thing. And she'd be, ooh, ooh. She'd start gagging in the chair and I'd have to run and turn off the TV. We'd be driving down the road. She'd see an Arby's sign. She'd say, oh gosh, roll down the window. Oh. And so every now and then we'd be falling asleep at night and I'd wait for her to get close to bed and I'd be like, it's good mood food. And she'd be like, oh. <laughs> I'm the husband of the year. <laughs> but everything was gross to her. And then the next stage was the bloated whale stage. That was how she coined it, not me. I wouldn't be so dumb as to call it that to her. Well, that's where she just feels like she has never been more unattractive in her life. It hurts to move. It hurts to exist and to breathe. She just feels swollen and bloated. Uh, I remember she'd be laying on her side with the big belly and trying to turn over. It would be the struggle. And so she would use momentum. She'd grab her baby belly and kind of like, whoop, and allow the momentum to carry her over. Oh, that's pretty brilliant, actually. But then, after the bloated whale stage came the get the baby out of me stage. And that's where her, all of her energy was focused on like, drinking horrible drinks and walking in malls and doing everything else that she could to try to get this baby out of her. And then D-Day came. And I have, the birth process is the most beautiful and disgusting and angelic and horrifying thing that I have ever seen in my entire life. The pain was intense. The grunting, the screaming, the crying, the begging for painkillers. And that was just what I was doing. And, <laughs> and I'm thinking, if this process stopped now, we just went through labor for about 24 hours, like, oh, it's over, let's go home now, and there's no baby to show for it? He'd be like, well, what was this for? That's just suffering for no point. I would never want to be pregnant again. This was stupid. But the moment that baby came out, and we saw his eyes look at us, and we heard that angelic, <laughs> the world changed. And for me, it was worth it. I don't know about her, but it must have been because we had another kid. But it's like all of the pain and all of the suffering that you went through, even though it was so real, you were able to rejoice in the entire process and the suffering that went into the producing of this baby. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying you can rejoice in the suffering because of what the suffering produces in your life. It's worth it. And the first thing that suffering produces in your life is endurance. When you go through suffering, you will build up endurance inside of your life. And endurance means to suffer patiently for an extended period of time. Well, that doesn't sound that great. The ability to continue to suffer more and more, that's what suffering does. It makes it so you can suffer more. But then you hear the definition of patiently is 
it makes it even worse. It says that patience is waiting with contentment. So remember when you're at Meyer on Carpenter Road, which is the worst place in the world, and you're trying to check out, and you pick this line, and all these other lines are going faster, so you go over here with your cart, and you get in that line, and then this line goes. So you get back over there, and then that cashier goes out on break. <laughs> and you're not waiting with contentment. You're like, Lord, just give me patience for 15 minutes of checking out at a Meyer. Well, endurance means that you are enduring suffering. You're going through suffering with contentment for extended periods of time. It's like, suffering produces in us the ability to suffer with contentment for an extended period of time? That's why we suffer? Can't we just not suffer? That sounds like a lot better plan to me. But this is why we have to build up endurance in us, is because the life that God's called you to isn't a 100-meter sprint and then you're done with it. The life of faith is a long-distance endurance event. It's a marathon. And in this marathon, you're not just trying to compete in it and finish it, but there's people that are trying to kill you along the course. There's people that are trying to stop you. They're trying to keep you from walking into the fullness of what God's called you to do. And the closer you get to the fulfillment to crossing that line, the greater the attacks become. The more that you move into the destiny that God's called you to, the more attacks there will be. You know, I never knew how much people could hate you until you became a pastor and tried to tell people that Jesus loved them and you did too. The amount of lies and gossip and hate mail and attacks that I get for that stuff, I'm like, I just wanted to tell you that Jesus loves you. Why do you hate me so much? But it's the same for you. Whatever it is that you're doing, wherever you are, as you move into what God's called you to, there's going to be continued resistance and the attacks will get greater and the attacks will get stronger. And if you haven't built up endurance inside of you, you won't be able to finish that race. It's like runners, the long-distance runners. They don't start out, I'm going to run a marathon, I'm just going to go run. They don't start out saying, well, I'll train by running 26 miles today. You start out running a mile. Have you guys ever started running? And you go out there and you run a mile and you're heaved over, dry heaving on the side of the sidewalk and people are driving by looking at you and you're pretending like it's cool and then right back bent over again. And then you wake up the next day and you are just sore. Every muscle aches. You don't want to sit down at work because you know you have to stand up again, so you're just going to stand there at work. You're going to eat your lunch standing up in the break room. But what happens is you go out there and you run a mile. You go through the suffering of running a mile. And then in a little while, you're able to endure more and you're able to go two miles. And then as you suffer the pain of going two miles, then you're able to go three miles and it builds and builds and builds. And that's what happens to us. As you go through sufferings and following out Jesus and walking into what he's called you to do, the suffering produces in you the ability to endure, to overcome the pain, to overcome the trials and the temptations and the people that are opposing you. It makes it so that as you continue to build up endurance, you're able to walk fully into what it is that God has called you to. And then after you build up endurance, what does endurance build inside of us? Endurance produces character. See, character is really the attitude that you display when you're enduring something. And you only get to see someone's character when they're going through suffering. If you ever met someone that you thought was just the most I've-got-it-together person in the world, and then they went through something like a hangnail, and you saw what their character was really like, when you go through some suffering, when you have to endure suffering, your character is exposed. The way that you respond to things is really exposed, not when life is going great, but when you're going through a tough time in your life. But not only is your character exposed, but character is produced and is built and it is refined in you as you go enduring suffering. 
It's a lot like gold. Have you guys seen how they purify gold? They take the metal and they put it in incredible heat, and as they heat it up, the junk begins to rise up to the top. And then they scrape that off, and they're not done. They heat it up even more, and more junk comes to the top, and they get scraped off, and then they heat it up more, and they just keep cranking up the heat of it until no more junk is coming up. And that's a lot like what happens inside of our own hearts. When you're going through the suffering, it's not that God's caused the suffering to happen to you, but he uses that redemptively to define and to refine your character so that you can walk into the fullness of what God's called you to. As you go through the sufferings and the fires and the trials in life, it brings out your character. And God will use that suffering that reveals your character to bring it to the surface and the top where God can then deal with it. Because when everything is going great in your life, those character issues remain hidden. They're not dealt with. You can live with horrible, terrible character flaws in your life as long as everything's going well. But as soon as things get rough, that character is exposed. And when your character is exposed, you can do one of two things. You can either flee and say, God, just take away the suffering. I'm going to run from the suffering. So I'm going to run away from the dream and the destiny that God's called me to in order to feel more comfortable, in order not to feel exposed. Or... You can say, God, in the midst of this suffering, as you're revealing to me my weaknesses, will you come and make me strong? God, as my character flaws are coming to the surface, will you use this as a time of where you remove those issues at the root from my heart? So that if you're struggling with pride or greed or, or gossip or selfishness or whatever it might be that's coming to the surface in your suffering, God can then take that and he can remove the junk from your life. And then in the next suffering you go through, it releases more heat, more stuff comes to the top, and God continues to remove it. And as you go through suffering, your character becomes more and more pure. I love in the Bible, you think, well, God, isn't there any other way that you can produce character in my life? Nope. Yeah, I've, ser- I've looked. Uh, believe me, I have looked all over in the Bible. I even pulled in some of the books that got cut out of the Bible. I'm like, is there anything in here? But the only way to produce character in your life is to endure suffering. But here's the good thing about character. is that when you have character, character then produces hope. That verse says, Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And do you know why character produces hope inside of you? It's because when you endure suffering, you discover something. And it's that the suffering that you go through, the situations and the circumstances you find yourself in, the failures that you see, the areas where it looks like people have opposed you or even blocked you from your destiny, absolutely none of those things can keep you from the love of God being poured out inside of your life. Not one of those things can keep you from the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you. And not one of those things can disqualify you from the destiny that God has called you to. There are no roadblocks in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus, like we're saying, he has overcome all. He's been elevated to the highest seat of authority in heaven. All power in heaven and earth has been given to him. And we have hope inside of us when we go through suffering because we recognize and we see that no matter what the trial was, no matter how much it hurt, God's love was still being poured out inside of us. His favor was still inside of us and he still had the ability to reach down into the midst of our suffering where it looked like every road had been blocked off and there was no way for the dream to be fulfilled and he was able to pick us up and to promote us to the destiny in an instant. And that's what happened with Joseph as he was sitting there in the jail. 
to the human eyes, it would look like there was nothing that could save him. There would be nothing that could take him into his destiny. But in a moment, God moved upon the hearts of people. And God promoted him from being in prison to being the second in command over Egypt in a single moment. It says this about Joseph in verses 21 through 23. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. I love that. Showed him steadfast love. And God's favor was still on him. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done, he was the one who did it. And the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Even in a prison, God causes Joseph to be prosperous. Even in prison, God shows Joseph his steadfast love. Even in the midst of the prison, when Joseph had done the right thing and suffered the wrong result, God was still leading him into his destiny. But it took him having to go through suffering. It took him having to suffer the wrong result that produced endurance in his life. And that endurance produced character, and that character produced hope. Friday, as I was saying my goodbyes to my grandfather, and I made a list of all the things that I wanted to say to him and, and to tell him that he was a man that was a pastor for 42 years. He lost his own dad when he was just a teenager. He was the oldest kid, so we had to go to work. He was working 12-hour days as a teenager to support his family. Worked his way through college, went to seminary, got married, had two children, but he still had to go to seminary in Chicago even though he was in charge of three different churches in northern Michigan. So he would be in school Monday through Friday in Chicago. Saturday, he'd do hospital visits and home visits. Sunday, he would preach three times and then go back to Chicago. He did that for four years, sacrificing, missing out on his kids' earliest days. And then all through his life and ministry, the trials and, and the tribulations that he went through. And then even now, as I watch him, as for months he was in a coma, and, and now he, he was only able to just move his eyes, blink his eyes, and just nod his head yes or no. And that was all he could do, and he was in incredible pain. And I told him, I said, Grandpa, after all the years that you've spent serving Jesus, after all the people that you've told about his love for after all the work that you've put into this and now finding yourself in what you're going through right now as you're waiting to die, I said, Grandpa, do you still love Jesus? He closed his eyes. A tear came down his cheek. He just nodded his head like that. Because he had a hope that did not put him to shame. Because God was ultimately delivering him into the fullness of his destiny, which is now he's a glorified man a son living the way he's always created to be now. God never abandoned him. God never gave up on him. And he realized that as he went through the suffering in life, and even at the end of his life, as it's a place where none of us ever want to be, he still knew God's steadfast love. He still knew the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he still knew that Jesus was his hope. And this is what I'm saying to you this morning. You can never put your hope in the situation or the circumstance changing. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. It doesn't matter if you're poor, the kingdom of God is yours. And this is what Jesus is saying. It's not that I'm going to come and I'm going to make you rich or I'm going to make you welcomed or well-loved in society. You're going to continue to live in the down class. You might continue to live as a slave. You might continue to be despised. Your situation might not change here on earth, but you can put your hope in Jesus. 
because he is the hope that never disappoints. And there is no system that man has devised that can keep you from his calling. There is no system that man has devised or attack of the enemy that can keep you from his steadfast love for you. He has made a way for you. Would you guys stand with me this morning as we pray? So I believe what God wants to do this morning is he wants to breathe some hope into some of you. So maybe you found yourself in the prison. Maybe for a long time you've been suffering unjust results because of the right thing that you've done. And Jesus is saying to you this morning, don't look around. Don't put your hope in someone else promoting you. Don't put your hope in the situation. Look firmly at me and put your hope and your trust and your faith in me because my love is poured out for you. I have given you the Holy Spirit and I will lead you into your destiny. You guys be bold enough. If that's something you need this morning, if you need a fresh breath of God in your life, would you raise your hands to me just to saying, God, I want you. I want you to be the one who restores, up, uh, restores hope inside of me. Would you make me believe you to be the one who's going to bring me into the fullness of your calling on my life, even when it looks impossible? Thank you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you went to the cross for our sins. And that in raising from the dead, defeating sin and death, you received all power. And that now you are the one who's able to elevate us. So God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you breathe fresh hope into us. Jesus, would you be elevated in our eyes? Will we look to you? Will we focus solely on you? Jesus, will we find refreshing in your presence? Would you restore joy to our souls? Jesus, we want our situations to change, but more than that, we want to know your steadfast love every moment of our life. And Jesus, would you stir up faith in our hearts to believe that you are the one who will lead us into our calling, that nothing can stop us, that nothing can separate us from your love. And this morning, if you're here too and you feel far from God, you aren't living with that that feeling of his steadfast love, that presence of God in your life. What you need to know is that that's what Jesus wants for you. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he's removed your sin and your guilt and your shame was so that you could live knowing him in relationship with him. There is a new way for you to live. You don't have to continue to live the old way. And would you raise your hand with me this morning if you say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know your life inside of me. I want to know your power. I want to live knowing that you are with me. Thank you. And let's pray this together, church. Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Remove my guilt and my shame. Pour your Holy Spirit into me. I repent of my sin. I bend my knee to you. And for the rest of my days, I will follow you. Teach me to hear your voice. Teach me to be obedient and reveal your vision and the calling for my life. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.